You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Open the Bible with us, and we're going to read the last half of John chapter 10. As we've been walking through the Gospel of John, the apostle, one of the twelve, John, one of the best friends of Jesus, has been introducing us to Jesus And the way he's been introducing us to Jesus has been by introducing us to people that do not agree with Jesus. They do not get Jesus and do not understand who he is. So that you and I can bring all of our questions, all of our skepticism, welcomed to the table, and then begin to lay them at the feet of Jesus and say, yeah, I know what it's like to ask that kind of question of Jesus. I know know what a stretch it is to believe that about Jesus. And John invites us in to where we see in the last several chapters of the book of John, the very end, he says, look... I could, I could go on and on about Jesus. We could fill books to the, end of the, to the end of the age about who Jesus is and what he's done, but I write these things so that you may believe in his name and experience life in his name. And so that's our goal. I want to compel you with all your skepticism, all your, all your doubts, all your questions. Join all the people that John introduces us to as they come to Jesus with questions, and I hope you'll experience the kind of thing that Jesus does, welcoming those questions, challenging them, but also offering himself as the answer to them. Beginning in verse 14, we'll spend most of our time on verse 22 through the end of the chapter in verse 22 22 through 42, but we'll begin reading in verse 14. Jesus is speaking here in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. And many of them said, he has a demon, and and he's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, 
I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. We find here that Jesus is not only the good shepherd, but we see that he is the eternal shepherd. In the last chapter, as we've been walking through chapter 10, we saw that right after a man had healed a man, who had, after Jesus had healed a man who was born blind, and they wanted to assault and escalate the conflict with Jesus because he healed the man on a Sabbath, Jesus responds and explains why it is that a person would be mad that Jesus would heal him. It's because they are thieves and robbers. They're not of the Father. They're not of Jesus, the Good Shepherd, and His flock. And we saw that in order to accept the gifts of Jesus, you have to accept the critique. And so Jesus has been introducing Himself, and in this last chapter, He's introduced Himself as the Good shepherd but as he's already done before if you're going to receive the gift of jesus you have to accept the indictment the critique he's introduced himself as the water the bread from heaven right the wine in the celebration the true means of purification the light in the dark life in dead places and so that means that to receive those good gifts from jesus you have to admit you're hungry you're thirsty you're lost you're wandering, you're in the dark, and you are blind. And so to receive the good gift of Jesus as the good shepherd is to admit that you are a helpless sheep. Now each one of these things is a gift that you received with the indictment so that none of us would walk away thinking, oh yeah, I think I kind of get it. Because if I told you you're a helpless wandering sheep, like prone to kill yourself, if Jesus doesn't help you, one of two responses will be, will be like stirred up in you, right? For those of you who know that, you're like, yes, thank God. Thank God that Jesus comes and gets me as I wander away from his protection. Or you're indignant. Who are you to say I'm a wandering, helpless sheep? Who, do you, who are you to say I'm blind or in the dark or thirsty? You see, the point the passage is that Jesus is the one. 
And the assumption he's making in this indictment is that we are looking for a shepherd or we're trying to be one. Now, you know this looks like elsewhere, right? To receive the good gift, you have to receive the indictment. Someone gives you a, maybe a breath mint today. In order to say thank you, you've kind of got to like admit something, don't you? You're like, are you saying that? Right? So if I were to come up and say, hey, I, 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 wanted an, I bought you a new shirt. And you'd be like, thank you. And then you might stop and think, wait a minute, is there something wrong with the shirt I have? You get this? This is the kind of indictment that Jesus is offering alongside the gift of being the good shepherd. And I think that if you're honest with yourself, you'll realize the truth of his words. The assumption he's making is that you are looking for a shepherd. You are desperately looking for someone to take care of you. You're looking for this. Or you're trying to be this. You're looking for this. I mean, this is the basis of every bad relationship or every unhealthy marriage. Finally, I've found the one who's going to take care of me. Finally, I've found the one who's going to heal my hurts. I found the one who will never fail me. You felt this? Finally, I got the job that will satisfy my longings for success and achievement. Finally, I've got what I'm looking for. Finally, I'm there. Or maybe, if you're on the other side and you're thinking, as I describe that person, wow, what a weak person. Always looking to find help from somewhere. Okay, so maybe you're not looking for a shepherd, but you're trying to be the good shepherd. Now, to be fair, you may be less annoying than the rest of the people in the world. But you're still looking for the good shepherd. In your self-sufficiency, you're less of a burden on the rest of us. But you're still looking for the good shepherd. It's just that you're looking to the mirror to find it. You see, we find here in this indictment that you don't become a Christian by going to church, by getting baptized, by keeping all the rules. You become a Christian by despairing of your own righteousness despairing of your own worthiness, and then throwing yourself like a helpless wandering sheep at the foot of the Good Shepherd, depending on Jesus for your righteousness, your forgiveness, and mercy. And John carries this theme throughout the latter half of the chapter, even though what we see here is at least two different settings. The first half of the chapter, we saw this, it's kind of, a, of a, a, a holdover from the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tents, to commemorate God caring for His people in the wilderness to show that Jesus is our care in the wilderness. And then the setting changes, you see there, the latter half of the chapter. It's now the Feast of the Dedication. This was the winter. This was months later. Now, the Feast of Dedication you won't find like these other feasts in the Old Testament. But instead, the Feast of Dedication was a commemoration of something that had happened about 160 years before this. And we celebrate today, and our friends of Jewish descent and culture celebrate as Hanukkah. So this is the first celebration of Hanukkah, a festival of lights, where the temple had been desecrated by a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, a leader of the Seleucids who, who went in and destroyed and desecrated the temple. And where, where they used to sacrifice to God, he brought in all sorts of idols and he even sacrificed pigs, unholy things, in the middle of the temple. And so, a man by the name of Mattathias or Maccabees, or Maccabeus, my favorite, uh, those are simply words that mean the hammer. I don't know what you're nickname is but 
He walks in, leads a revolt, and takes over Jerusalem again. And when he finally run out the enemy, what did they do? They rededicated the temple. And they decided, look, this is a big deal. To reestablish the holiness and sacredness of the presence of God is something we ought to celebrate, and we celebrate it now as Hanukkah. I say we, I mean, I don't particularly celebrate Hanukkah. But this is still celebrated today. So this is where we are. Jesus is talking in the Feast of Dedication. It's winter, apropos, I think celebrating Hanukkah, or at least what would become known as Hanukkah. It was winter. And all of those different settings, you saw the connection, right? The language, even though it's months later, did you catch it? He's still saying the same things about him being shepherd and the people being sheep. And so the governing themes of this chapter are at least twofold. Jesus as the Messiah, and then Jesus as the Son of God. In the first eight verses, we see this theme of Jesus as a Messiah, and then Jesus as a son of God for the rest of the chapter. Now in Acts 5.12, we remember this, as we were walking through the, God, or through the book of Acts, Christians would regularly gather at Solomon's colonnade. So this was a common place for the people to gather. But this is a Christological passage. I don't care that you remember that name. I don't even care you were impressed by that word. What I mean is this, this is a study of the word about the nature of Jesus as the Christ. This is a big deal. For us to believe who Jesus is is to understand the gift that he offers to him to us through himself as Messiah and as the Son of God. And so two things happen. He presents himself as a as a as the Christ, presents himself as the Son of God, and then the second part we see here is the opposition that ensues. Jesus keeps escalating the conflict. So he's at the Feast of Dedication, verse 24. The Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, then please just tell us plainly. What's Jesus' response? I already told you. I already told you. They're like, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? And he says, I've already told you. Now you can go right back, remember, to John chapter 4. The woman at the well. What does she say? Look, One day the Messiah is going to come and he's going to answer all our questions. And what does Jesus say in the response to this woman? I am he. I'm the one. And so he seems to have already made it clear. What's interesting is who he made it clear to and who he hasn't. Now I I say on a hopefully on on a continual basis that Jesus embodies this Old and New Testament axiom that God opposes the proud but draws near to the humble. And we see that in Jesus. Look at Jesus' demeanor. Whenever he encounters someone who is humble, teachable, even desperate, what is he? He's gentle. He's kind. He's the embodiment of compassion. But whenever he, whenever he encounters someone who is prideful or thinks they know better than Jesus, he's a jerk. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're like whitewashed tombs. You brood of vipers. Whitewashed tombs. You you look pretty on the outside, but you are full of dead bodies. You're hiding dead bodies inside of you. And so we see this played out here, don't we? So people challenging him, wanting him to say again what he's already made clear, but what does he do? He kind kind of eludes them. He evades them and points to something. The people who I'll reveal myself to are my sheep. They're people like the woman at the well. But Here's what we find. Jesus' authority is demonstrated. 
when his sheep hear his voice. So what does that look like in the last half of John chapter 10? It looks like this. The good shepherd is one with the Father, trusting in his unbreakable word and doing his eternal work. Tell us who you are. Explain to us. Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. Now notice what they're saying. They're saying what you have already done and what you have already said is insufficient. And Christians claim this. The works and words of the Good Shepherd are all sufficient. They're perfectly sufficient. They're perfectly sufficient. They're all that we need. He's saying, not only have I told you, look in verse verse 25, I told you, you didn't believe, but then he says, the works that I do in my Father's name are the, should bear sufficient witness. Like, isn't it enough that I turned water into wine? Isn't it enough that I healed this person, that I walked on the water? Like, is it, is it not enough that I calmed the sea? Is it not enough that I, I turned a, a sack lunch into a feast with 12 basketfuls, baskets full left over? If that's not enough, then nothing ever will be. The witness of Jesus in his words and his work are decisive. Now notice, the miracles he has done aren't to point to themselves. They're not to be magic tricks that we ought to imitate, but instead the miracles are intended to corroborate the divine revelation. They're signs, after all, John tells us. And the implication is this. If you need more than what Jesus has done and said, then this will never work. The Pharisees wanted more. Now they wanted a reason to pin him in and turn against him. Rather than to be taught by him and led by him, they want more. And the fact that what they had already received from Jesus wasn't enough showed that nothing ever will be. The implications are simple. The thing that you think is lacking in what Jesus does and says is the thing that you actually believe is all-sufficient. And we believe what Jesus does and says is sufficient, but whatever you think is lacking in Jesus is what you find to be all-sufficient. Now, the way we say it is this. Just frame the sentence of your own belief this way. I will trust Jesus if, and then fill in the blank. I will believe in Jesus if, and then fill in the blank. Finish that sentence. And what you will find is this. Whatever is in that blank, whatever is on the other side of that if is the thing you really love, you really value, and is all satisfying to you. It is, in this sense, your good shepherd. I will trust Jesus as long as fill in the blank. And whatever is in that blank is your God. I will believe in Jesus as long as this. And whatever that this is for you, you are a slave to. It owns you. It will hold you till you die, and it might even be the case that it will be the thing that kills you. You see, if what Jesus is and has done isn't enough, then you don't get it. You've missed it. If I say Jesus is forgiveness for your sins, and you're like, what's that got to do with me? Then you clearly have no idea how perfect and holy God is and how awful your sins are compared to him. Such that if I come along and say, Jesus took your place, you'd be like, what's the big deal about that? And what are you saying in that? You're saying, I don't really think I'm in danger. I don't really need a Savior. I don't really need Jesus to help me with anything. 
I'll trust Jesus as long as what? Whatever you say, that's your God. That's your greatest love. I'll believe in Jesus if he'll endorse my lifestyle. I'll start trusting Jesus as soon as he starts agreeing with me. I'll trust Jesus as soon as he proves himself to me. I'll trust Jesus if he'll fix this thing. And there you go. That's your God. That's your slave master. And until you confess that, until you turn away from that in repentance, it will haunt you until you die. And it may even kill you. You see, Christians consider the possibility that Jesus' work and his words to us are fully sufficient. They're enough. They alone satisfy the longings of our heart. And anything else, and again, if, if you're on the other side, right, if, you, if, you, if you clearly can think of a few things, I'll believe in Jesus if. Again, I want to challenge you. That's your God. You're a slave to it. But here's what I want to encourage you. When, when you using his words, when you're done wandering away to find satisfaction in that thing, Jesus will be right there when, you, when, when, you, when, it, when that becomes a reality to you. So I would say to you, go, go ahead, chase that thing, look for that thing, ask Jesus to meet those conditions, and when that thing is desperate, like it, it, it falls short of satisfying you, it's not the thing that helps you or gives you the thing that it promises. I mean, because that's what these kinds of things do, right? They always promise something that they never deliver. That relationship, it'll get, it, it's going to give you all you need. If I can just express myself in this way, if I can just be experienced in this way, if I can just have this achievement, it, it will be enough. And you know exactly what happens. There's no pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. Well, the good news is, the good shepherd knows this. The good shepherd's more aware of your wandering than even you are. The good shepherd is good because he knows how helpless you are as a sheep even better than you know. And I love that. He doesn't disparage that about you, right? I mean, that's what I would do. I'd be like, all right, fine. You're going to wander off? You're going to think you know better than me? Fine. Bye. And in fact, that's what the wrath of God is. Romans 1 tells us that the wrath of God is when God says, fine, do what you want. And he turns them over to what they really want. The love of God, the love of any good parent, is when the child reaches for the hot stove or runs into traffic, we say, no, don't. The wrath of a parent would be to say, fine, learn the hard way. And what is Jesus here? Jesus embodies the compassion of God as a shepherd. He knows you're running. He knows what you're doing. And yet, what is he? I'm still going to be here. I'm a good shepherd. And when you hear my voice, I'll never lose you. You see, whatever you think is lacking in Jesus is what you really find to be your shepherd, your all-sufficient satisfaction. Verse 26, it says, You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, you would expect him to kind of like back off, maybe, and even kind of like begin to explain himself. Well, what do you mean you're the good shepherd? And you would expect him to say, okay, well, here's what I really meant. What does he do? He says, no, actually, your problem's worse. The reason you don't know who I am is because you do not belong to God. Now, he's already done this in previous chapters. John chapter 8, remember this? <laughs> They're like, hey, you know, you know, tell us who you are, expose yourself. And, he's, and Jesus says, look, if you knew who I was, you would know the Father. But since you, 
since you know neither, the, neither me nor the Father, because if you knew me, you would know my Father. Verse 42, he says, look, if God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am right here. I came not of my own accord, but he's the one who sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Do you hear the parallel? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And so instead of saying, you're right, let me explain what it means to be a shepherd. He says, look, if you, that's not enough. If you don't believe, if you don't receive me as shepherd, if you don't understand my nature as shepherd, then you're in worse shape than you even know. It's not just that you aren't hearing me rightly. It's just that you are completely incapable of hearing me. You're not my sheep. You hear the voice of someone, but it's, according to chapter 8, your father, the devil, the thief who comes to destroy in chapter 10. The problem is worse than you think. It's that you are not his. You see yourself as your own. Now that has to grab, shake, and even crush you at first. Doesn't it? You're not your own. And the reason you're not your own is because I have not made you my own. Verse 27. He gives two proofs of what it looks like. Those who hear and those who follow. And we connect this with the last chapter. Jesus has fully given of himself in the last chapter. We read that. He, of his own accord, lays his life down. Jesus is not a victim. He willingly laid his life down. He had the authority to give his life away. No one had the authority to take it. He gave it away. It was his time, his hour had come. But also, he had the authority to take it up. So let's put these two together. The, the shepherd we saw last chapter gives of himself fully, but we see in this chapter he knows his sheep fully. See the good news in this. See the good news. Not only has the shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, but he lays down his life for the sheep in spite of the fact that he knows every single thing about them. You see, encompassed in this little truth is what I would say is probably one of the greatest causes of suffering in the human condition since the fall. And it's this. Down deep, you are desperate for someone to know you. And at the same time, down deep, you are scared to death that they will find you out. Have you felt this? Have you felt that tension in your own heart? I want to be known. I want to be famous. I want to be important. I want to make a difference. Or even on a more intimate level, I just want people to know who I am. And then once they get close, and once they find out who you really are, and once the thing that you always wanted to be known so well comes to fruition, what happens? You run. Because you're terrified of being found out. Now don't get me wrong, this, this is evident everywhere. This is not new. This idea of like, I kind of want people to know me, but I don't really want me to, I don't want to be found out. Now this is the basis of social media, is it not? Right? I want a lot of people to know me. I want to have a lot of influence, but please let them only know me in my best possible light. I'll be explicit, in the best possible filter. Don't let them find out what I really look like. Don't let them find out what it's really like. Let them see the snapshot of my marriage on date night. Don't let them see us fight about silly, piddly things that we've been fighting about from the beginning. 
Let them see the snapshot of me and my family on the beach. Don't let them see the awkward fight that was right before it to set that shot up. You feel it? And so we wander like sheep with this dual desperation of wanting to be known and yet terrified of being known. Look what Jesus does. Did you, did you get the good news in this? He knows us fully and yet gives himself fully. He knows us, everything about us, and yet that does not stop him from giving everything in him for us. Friend, you don't know anyone like this. You don't know anyone like this. I dare you to start showing your real self. I dare you to start letting yourself be found out. And you'll find out really quickly those who know the Good Shepherd and those who do not. And those who do not, once you become inconveniently awkward and painful and messy, will dismiss you. But those who know that the Good Shepherd has known all of that about them and died for them in their, in their place anyway, find a way to go, yeah, me too, I love you. I know what that's like. Don't miss this good news. You're fully known. Now this has implications for what this looks like as a church, that we become the people who stop hiding. The way we say this is, at least with respect to like genuine membership, a member of a church relinquishes the right to ever say the words, none of your business, ever again. Ever again. There, you never get to say none of your business. That's not your concern. That's off limits. Why? Why? What is it that we might be testifying when we relinquish our rights to those things? The gospel that I am fully known and there's nothing, there's not a single thing that you could know about me that would change what he has given for me. There's not a single thing that you could find out about me that he hasn't already paid to forgive. There's no sin that you could discover in the heart of a pastor that Christ hasn't already paid for. If that doesn't excite you, then, then friend, you, you aren't his sheep. Hear his voice. These two eternal destinies are laid before us to perish or to have life. And Jesus says, now that I've fully given myself to you, in spite of the fact that I fully know you, I want you to see the implications of this. I lay down my life, I take it back up, my sheep know me, I know them. I lay down my life for them. They're wandering, crazy, smelly sheep. I know, I'm going to die for them anyway, right? And we shared, I shared this with you last week, the craziest mystery of Luke chapter 15. Jesus goes and, and like chases down the wandering sheep and he, sell, he like throws a party. Who does that? Hey, I caught the stupid one, right? Like, I, can, I got him. Let's party. And some of you would be like, well, let's eat him. Like, no, he, he invites his friends and celebrates finding the lost one. That's, that's the nature of this shepherd. And the implications of it are this, that we no longer are subject to, to perishing in our sin and a separation from God, but instead, because of the good shepherd knows us and we know him, what does it say we have? Eternal life. Now, he's going to personify this. He's going to put this to action in the next few verses. But just ask yourself this. What if no one in the world ever had the power to threaten you ever again? What if the worst threat you could face, the threat of death, I'll kill you if, had no hold on you? How passionate, how devoted, how much of a radical, how much of a life-giving person would you be if nothing had the power to hold you and inspire in you fear? 
Because that's what he says. Look, I'm, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to give them, because they hear my voice, I give them eternal life in verse 28. And when I give them eternal life, they'll never perish. Don't miss the implications. There are two eternal destinies, to perish or to know the good shepherd and have eternal life. Now, this is good news for us. What he says next is this. Our safety and our eternal security is in the hands of the good shepherd. These, these combined pictures of, a, of our safety, security, our eternal fate is all right here, singularly in the hands of the good shepherd. Verse 28, I give them eternal life, no one, and they will never perish. And then what does he say? And then no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. Now I, I, I say this, I hope whenever we uncover stuff like this, my, my goal is not to make you a Calvinist. My goal is to make you a Christian and to believe that nothing in the world has greater power than Jesus and his grip is not Calvin's idea, it's Jesus, okay? So just hang back. I know if there's like things rising up in your mind, well, that sounds, hang on a minute, take those to Jesus, okay? These are Jesus' words. I've got you, period. The Father has you, period. And this is important for us. The, the doctrine we talk about uh, in, in, in light of this is what we would call eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. You might hear it paraphrased fairly roughly, something like once saved, always saved. Just to be fair, usually when somebody says that, they're doing something they really shouldn't be doing. Once saved, always saved. Okay, that's careful. It is not something meant to inspire license. It's something meant to inspire joy. Every doctrine that we hold tightly to, even this one here, formulated by Jesus' own very words, is ultimately for our joy and peace. The purpose of doctrine is not to win an argument at the next cocktail party you attend. It is to produce joy and peace. To produce joy and peace. Doctrine is not a weapon to use against other people. Doctrine is a weapon to use against the enemy. When the enemy comes to tempt, right, to, to kill, to steal, and destroy, what do we say? Look, 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 look. Do what you want. I am in his hands. I illustrate it this way. And this time of year, we walk on a lot of icy sidewalks. Not mine. I mean, I'm a good neighbor. I clear mine immediately. Sort of. Once it's warm. And as walking along... On an icy sidewalk, I'll take one of my daughter's hands, seven-year-old or nine-year-old. It gets easier, but we're going to walk together on an icy, un, maybe unshoveled or, or, or iced over uh, kind of a sidewalk. I'm going to grab their hand, and we're going to walk, and they're going to slip, but they're not going to fall. And I ask you this question. How is it that they do not fall? Is it because they are holding my hand, or is it that the Father is holding theirs? Now, the answer is yes. But you notice something. Something that's being implied about our relationship, and namely, our power, our strength. The thing that keeps them from falling is not their grip on their father. Hear me clearly in the depths of your soul. The key thing that keeps them from falling is the grip of their father. I will not let them fall. In fact, you can see the, the, the weakness of this analogy is in my own humanity, right? If they're gonna, we're both going to fall. If we're, if, you know, like if they're going to fall, I mean, we're, we're both going down. Now, thank God, this analogy, as it fails, 
points to God's perfection, doesn't it? <laughs> Aren't you glad that this promise Jesus is making is not some, you know, foibly father, but instead it is the eternal and powerful father, the God of the universe, sovereign and righteous, abounding in steadfast love, rich in mercy, slow to anger. And Jesus says, when you hear my voice, you will experience his grip. You'll experience it. Well, he's not going to let me go. Does that mean I can do whatever I want? Well, I mean, if the purpose of that kind of doctrine is to win arguments, yeah, you're right, you should. But imagine for just a moment that I was, I don't know, doing a wedding. And at the end of the bride saying her vows to the groom, I promise I'll be faithful to you till death do us part. Imagine if the groom in that moment, hearing that commitment for love forever and ever said, aha, gotcha. You can't get out of it now. What might you think about that groom? What might you assume to be true about his view of that bride of his? He doesn't love her. He's using her. And so I would say, if you find yourself saying, oh good, he's never going to let me fail. And so that means I don't have to repent of sin or turn from any sort of life that I'm now leading. I can do whatever I want. Then friend, you have not heard his voice. But in the depths of your wandering and your deepest moment of despair, in the place where you're wondering if God could ever still love you, you know what that's like, right? And that moment where you're like, this is surely too much. Surely I've crossed the line one too many times. Surely he will not rescue me from how far I've run. In that moment of despair, when you hear these words that Jesus says, uh-uh, I will not let you go. You are mine. It won't engender a, a licentious desire to do whatever you want. What will it do? It will produce joy and peace. I want to take a moment here. Look what he does. He engages in this debate. They don't like that. They said, you're making, as a man, uh, yourself out to be God. And, and they said, look, you, you can't do that. Now, the irony is that he isn't a man making himself out to be God. John has been telling us. Remember, I, I don't know if you're a literature nerd. Just the irony in every chapter is just really fun. I hope you're, hope you're like bird watching with me. You don't have to be a literature nerd, but you know, if you are, hey, this is pretty, pretty fun. Because if you catch that, you're like, you're making yourself as a, you're a man making yourself out to be God. And what has John been telling us? No, he's God who has made himself into a man, right? Jesus answered them. It's, is it not written in your law, right? Turns. And then he, and he quotes this obscure passage, a Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 82, a Psalm nobody memorizes. And he says like, in your law, doesn't it say you're God's? And if he called them gods, now who's he talking about? Well, Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph, is, is a psalm about the judges of Israel. That the judges would essentially take the place by God's word, the very nature and place of God. And they would say, look, here is God's word. Now the rest of that psalm makes it clear that even though they were taking the place of God and, and God called them gods, it says that they died. They died. But, but in that moment, what they were acting as if through the authority and sovereignty of God and his word, they were passing judgment. They were, they were, in that sense, gods, like lowercase g, gods. Don't miss what Jesus does here. Jesus interprets scripture in the face of a death threat. Oh, that we would be the same. And what I tell you? Like, 
What does it look like when someone can, can threaten you with death and you're not afraid? Jesus, he personifies it. He does this. And so they're like, you need to do this. You know, they attack him like, you're doing this. And he says, no, this is actually what I'm doing. And then he does something. He just he, he introduces us to something that's really important. You see, not only do we adopt that Jesus is the good shepherd, we adopt the good shepherd's trust and the unbreakability of the scripture. Did you catch that comment? He interprets the scripture in the face of death. May, by the grace of God, that be said of us, right? This is why uh, in, in, in the Protestant Reformation, when people started being, being tried as heretics, and they were even burned at the stake, they, they memorized and declared the Psalms as their bodies were being burnt, and their crumpled bodies fell over into the fire. What were they doing? Declaring a sermon, both in their own dying bodies, but also in the words that were coming out of their mouths. If you called them gods, verse 35 says, then to whom the word of God came, that's why they were even able to be called gods, they were just saying what God had said, and parenthetically, and scripture cannot be broken, then do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? So he's making a very profound argument here. He's saying, look, if these people who were clearly not God, but they were sent by God, could be called lowercase g, gods, and they weren't blaspheming, then how is it that you're saying I'm blaspheming because I'm the son of God? Oh, by the way, I heal people and I walk on water and stuff. How is it that it's okay for them in Psalm 82, but not for me? Now, notice what he's doing. He is making a principled argument. He's laying down the first premise. The scripture cannot be broken. It's unbreakable. And therefore, since even in Psalm 82, a psalm I promise none of you have memorized. If you have, I feel like I owe you, but I doubt it. None of you have Psalm 82 memorized. And yet Jesus says, if this obscure place of the Bible... Even in this place where you've never heard, it's not a psalm of David, it's a psalm of Asaph, and it's about an event that most people don't really remember or teach their kids about. And yet if in this moment, God's manifold wisdom was being made known, then what does it say about the rest of the Bible? Now we call this, this premise here, this major premise that he bases his minor premise on, the scripture cannot be broken, what we call the plenary authority of the Bible. That is the whole and complete authority of the Bible. Jesus' claim is based on, and he's defending himself here, interpreting scripture in the face of a death threat out of an obscure psalm that nobody probably had memorized to show us, as he says here, and illustrate for us, the scripture can't be broken. All right. Before we wrap up, let's just hang on this for a moment. I know this is a turnoff for so many of you. Boy, you, you guys really take a strong stance on the Bible. And you'll think, like, we've come up with something new. And I want you to see, as we regularly open the Bible, it's not to discover something new, it's to uncover something timeless. And so if you're like, wow, you really have us, you really believe, you really believe that's true, that the Bible says that? And I would say, look, Jesus believed it. And that's enough for me. Do I fully understand that? <laughs> Can I comprehend that completely in one single thought? Absolutely not. But I want you to see that this is nothing new. And the thing that most people don't like is the thing that they didn't like about Jesus. He took this hardline, literalist stance on the Bible. Oh wait, he did it in the face of a death threat. 
please don't be mad at us. Would you see where it comes from? You see where we, like we didn't think of this. We're not that clever. We're not even that bright. I'm certainly not that creative or innovative. But Jesus says, this is the way we do this. Now, I'm not saying this to be argumentative or unnecessarily provocative. I'm trying to show you what Jesus did in the face of a threat to his own life. He doubled down on what? The scripture. God's word for him. Oh, that we might do the same. You'll say, well, I don't like how you stand on things like marriage or gender or sexuality or heaven or hell or money or the church. And I want you to see, like, this is just our humble attempt. We're not, we're not trying to, like, impose some new will. We're just humbly trying to, as, as Isaiah 66 says, like, all these things my hand have made, thus I've created them, says the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is contrite in heart and who trembles at my word. And that's all we're trying to do. We're saying if Jesus says this, if this, if this word can be trusted, even, okay, don't, don't miss that, an obscure psalm from a very non-famous author. And if that non-famous author, Asaph, I say that like I'm more famous than him, forgive me, but in the grand scheme of Scripture, he's not the most well-known guy. Anyone going to name your son Asaph? And if he can be inspired by God himself to speak authoritatively and life-givingly, in that obscure psalm, then why would we mistrust anything else? Jesus doubled down on this. Now, I'll just say it this way. For the first 18 centuries of Christianity, people embraced this view. Scripture's inspired. It's trustworthy. It's our guide, every single bit of it. And I want to tell you, if you don't like that, I just want to tell you, you're new. You're really new. You're, not, you're, not, you're bringing something else to the table. But do you know what Christians call innovation in the field of doctrine? Heresy. And your particular heresy is not new. And so we come to the table and go like, hey, is it possible that Jesus might know more than I do? And I say that because this might actually expose you in a very helpful way. You'll say, well, I don't want people to find out that I really believe this about the Bible. Did you hear it? Did you hear your slave master? You're a slave to what people think about you. You're a slave to the zeitgeist. That is the popular thoughts of the day. You're a slave to what's popular. You've probably been that. You probably had that slave master since you were a seventh grader. I know what that feels like. You're a slave to your own image. Well, people are gullible. Only gullible, unintelligent, unenlightened, uneducated people would believe this. I don't want you to miss what you just called Jesus. And so I want you to make sure you tell him and tell all your friends. Post it, please. Run with it. I know better than Jesus. Hashtag I know better than Jesus. Do it. Say, I understand the Bible better than Jesus. If you, I mean, if you're going to tiptoe into that, just run to it, man. Go for it. Now, I, I'll applaud you. That's courageous. But for the rest of us, we try to trust Jesus. He makes a sound argument. Says, look, if this, if this wasn't blasphemy, then this couldn't be. Ultimately, you notice the argument he makes, though, isn't to prove a point. It's just to buy him time. Did you catch that? It didn't resolve the matter, did it? It didn't shut them up. And what was he buying time for? Verse 37 tells us. 
If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, please just believe the works in order that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Did you catch what he was buying time for? One more invitation. One more appeal. He lets them wrestle over what they think about the Bible so that he can get one more chance to say, please, look, if what I say is not enough, would you at least trust the fact that I healed a man? And then might that begin to open your eyes to me as the good shepherd? Verse 40 goes, and the nature of faith is shown to us that ultimately Jesus is everything that John said he would be. So I want to wrap up on this thought of Jesus as the eternal and good shepherd. And I want to invite you into beginning to possibly asking him that you might hear his voice and come to find that even in your wandering, he is not surprised, but he's going right after you. Here's the way I want to illustrate this. What if you and I got together 10 years ago? And what if 10 years ago we sat down and I told you all of the awful, sinful, terrible things that you were going to do over the next 10 years? Imagine it, really. What if 10 years ago I sat down and I said, here, this, this is what you're going to do. You're going to lie to this person. You're going to betray this person. You're going to be unfaithful to this friendship. You're going to cheat on this. You're going to deceive on this. Every single foolish, sinful, hurtful thing you've done in the last 10 years. What if 10 years ago I told you exactly what was about to happen? How would you respond to me? Why are you attacking me, Jonathan? What do you think of me? How can you think so lowly of me? And if it's possible that while that might seem ridiculous, that you would never do such a thing, even though in the last 10 years you have done every single one of them, is it possible that you might have another 10 years of wandering in front of you? And you'll say, well, no, I'm not going to do that again. I'm never going to do that. I'm going to do better this time. I'm going to be better this week and this year and this decade. That's what you would have said 10 years ago. Is it possible, is it possible that that means you really are the wandering sheep? You really are, even in the face of awful consequences, you chose those things. And if you didn't expect to do those things in the last 10 years, why would you expect to think you'd have any different response in the next 10 years? And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what is it, Jonathan? Are you saying I'm helpless? Yes, I am. Except you know who already knows everything you've done and everything you will do? What if I told you Jesus already knew all of those things and Jesus knows all of these things you're about to do and instead of rejecting you like I certainly would do, instead of rejecting you and casting you out, he knows and yet he lays down his life for you. He knows what you will surely do before you will even do it. And what is his response? What did he say his response is? He knows you're going to run. He knows you're going to betray. He knows you're going to lie. He knows you're going to deceive. And what is his response? To hold tighter. 
Would you hear that as good news? He gives Himself totally, even though He knows you totally. He is totally God. And He can fix all that is broken in you. He's not surprised by it. He's delighted to be that for you. Would you hear His voice today? Would you drown out all the other voices, maybe, that you're listening to? And consider that Jesus has a word that could change everything. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are the good shepherd. Even though, even as those words roll off my own tongue, they, I can't even fathom the depths to which they are true. Thank you that in our wandering, and our helplessness, you have not looked on us in shame or despair or condescension, but you've looked on us with mercy. And in joy, you've tied yourself to us. For some of us in this room that maybe we've come here and we, we, we really are looking for something else to give us comfort, we're looking for a way to comfort ourselves, and as a result, we've rejected everything that Jesus presents for those in this room that maybe this, this sounds crazy to believe, they, they, maybe they, they identify with verse 19 and 20 and 21. Man, Jesus is insane. This can't be real. But even now, would you stir up their curiosity and the longing in their own heart to consider the possibility that you are who you say you are, that you have known them so intimately and yet you have drawn them here not to bring a word of condemnation or rejection, but to bring a word of mercy. Speak that word to those of us in this room who need to hear it. You're not going to leave us. You're not going to forsake us. And when our eyes and ears are open to this, you're never going to lose us. For those of us in this room, maybe we just believe that we've wandered too far. May these words be good news to us. That we can trust your word to us. That you have a grip on us. And the Father has a grip on us as well. May the things that we believe stir up greater joy. May we truly realize that the shepherd is good and eternal and the reason that he's good is that he has taken our place. He has borne our sorrows. He has borne our suffering. He has been for us what we could never be for ourselves. And in his perfection, he doesn't pass on condemnation. In his perfection, he passes on his wealth and inheritance. May we receive that. May we be reminded of that. May we be inspired to joy and peace forever and ever because of that. And it's in his name, the good shepherd, Jesus. Amen.